Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's get into the word this morning. Last, not last week, but the week before, we started a series that we're going to continue on when we do communion. We're not going to receive communion this morning. We're doing that once a month, and we're going to receive, we're going to continue on uh, a series on the blood of Christ and how uh, the, the different facets of the blood and how we can appreciate that. We talked about how, how, why the Father appreciates the blood, how we can utilize it in our own life and then use it against the enemy. And we're going to look more at that in, in uh, the coming weeks, but I want to reach back and reach into another series we started. Uh, I love doing series. The problem is, and I stumble into something else I want to preach on, and uh, so I want to reach back into our spiritual warfare one. Uh, and what I want to talk about this morning is I want to give a little bit of explanation, a spiritual explanation for the predicament we find ourselves in as a nation. Anybody wonder if humanity is losing its mind? We're, my phone is talking to me. It said it's still on it. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, uh, I've you know we when we even when we were in London, we went through Kensington Palace, and uh, there was a gala. Uh, something I was not interested in. It was a fashion gala, so we went through there, and there's all these pictures of men in dresses. And, uh, and their bravery for being their, their uh, sincere self. And it was just heartbreaking. Uh, there's, this, there's been a legitimization of troubled thinking. And so we need to understand how we got here. Now, uh, probably six, eight months ago, sometime in the last 10 years, uh, we talked, we did a series called the Strange New World. And it was, uh, I shamelessly lifted the title from a book by Carl Truman talking about the sociological and psychological underpinnings of the crisis we're in, the moral crisis we're in. How did we get here? This morning, I don't want to deal so much with the sociological and psychological underpinnings or the tracks that we let, let us here. I want to look at the spiritual tracks because we're dealing with a, a level of darkness and a level of confusion that we have not known as a nation. It's unprecedented in the history of our nation. It's not unprecedented in human history because there have been many nations that have reached this point and the sad fact is it was the twilight of their existence. And I, I'm still holding on, I'm still praying, I'm asking God to deliver this nation and I'm believing God for that. Uh, but in order for us to contend for the survival of this nation, we've got to understand the, the situation that we're in. We've got to really have a grasp of what we're dealing with. And so I want to talk about the spiritual backdrop. And so in order to do so, I'm going to reach back into something we talked about. I, matter of fact, I looked it up on my phone during worship. I know, I peaked. Uh, wasn't on Facebook. I looked at our podcast. And April 16th, we talked about this. We talked about the three entrances of evil into human history. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to just do a little bit of review. If you really want to get into this, you can go back to that podcast. The one we didn't deal with so much was the one we're going to deal with this morning. 
But we talked about the three entrances of evil into human history. The fact is that Second Temple Judaism, which was around the time of the intertestamental period and on, uh, Second Temple Judaism had a theology of three entrances of evil into human history. The reason that's rele- relevant to you and I is not because we're, we're you know, we buy off on everything that was taught in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, we need to, it needs to shore up with the word of God. But the reason it's relevant is it was the worldview of the biblical authors of its day. It was the backdrop. It was the, uh, the, the, the theological backdrop that they were writing from. And there's things in scripture we simply will not understand unless we understand where they were coming from because they were speaking into a world that viewed three entrances of evil. What I mean by that is this. They, uh, you know, common to evangelicalism, of course they recognized the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. And so that was the first entrance of evil, the fall of man. Man fell into sin. And that introduced the human nature to sin. That opened man's heart to sin. That was internal evil. That, was, that obscured man's understanding. Man became fallen. That was the first entrance. But they also viewed Genesis chapter 6 as another entrance of evil. And some Jewish authors even considered that a greater travesty than the first one. We're not going to debate that this morning. But we need to understand that they also viewed Genesis chapter 6 where it says that the sons of God entered the daughters of men. That the watchers entered the, the, the daughters of men. They found them beautiful and they they brought forth children who were the giants of old, the Nephilim. And uh, we're not going to get into all of that except to say this, that the early, the early church recognized that as where the demonic realm came from, these hybrid beings. Now, I was taught in Bible school that those sons of God were simply the sons of Seth, and they went into the daughters of, of, uh, of Abel, and uh, and so, or, or of of uh, yeah, of Cain rather, and that they produce these children, and that is not what the text is saying. We 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 want to kind of wrestle with that because it seems so weird to us that we want to kind of just massage it so it reduce the supernatural element to that story so that we can be comfortable with it. But the fact is, it was talking about the Watchers, these uh, angelic creatures going into the daughters of men, uh, virtually all. All of ancient culture had some form of this story. Let me just pause there and uh, point out something. Don Richardson, anybody ever read anything about Don Richardson? He wrote the book Peace Child, uh, Eternity in Their Hearts. Don Richardson was a missionary, a phenomenally brilliant man, but he was also, also an anthropologist. He wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. And one of the things he talked about is that the farther you get back into human history, the more you will see the threat of scripture embedded into those cultures. And the whole book was based on this. It had, this was the idea. The first half of the book was a world prepared for the gospel, and the second half of the book was a gospel prepared for the world. What he was talking about, is, and when he said a world prepared for the gospel, he was talking about how there was already uh, there was already truth embedded. There, there were remnants of the biblical story. All these, all these cultures of the Fertile Crescent, you know, where c- civilization started and, you know, where, where we read about these, these nations in the Old Testament. All of them had a theology of a flood. They all had a theology of the watchers entering into the daughters of men. And more and more of that material has been discovered even in the last century. And so there, as you study 
as you get back to the earlier remnants of human culture, you begin to see the threads of Genesis 1 through 12 because they were, there was oral history that was still tying them to those situations. So I say all that to simply say this. The first entrance of evil was where man fell. His nature fell. He became corrupt and he needed salvation. Okay, the second entrance of evil produced an external evil in the form of these evil entities that entice men. And so, and literally, all, there, there was, they defied nature. Jude talks about this, where they left their assigned role and went into the daughters of men. Uh, some of the early church writers talked about how uh, literally it, it uh, corrupted all of nature because they crossed those lines. And so that is where the early church fathers, and you can see this in many of their writings, men like Origen and uh, so forth, they wrote about how the the demonic realm came from these hybrid beings. And so they were the disembodied spirits of these Nephilim that were released into the atmosphere through the flood. And so they were looking, uh, matter of fact, the, uh, some of the early church writings, they talk about things like this, that hungering they could not eat, thirsting they could not drink, so they looked for a human body to possess, to satiate their desires. And so they would experience it through occupying a human, uh, human body. And so... Demonic possession is a very real thing. And we are living in a spiritual war. Whether you are comfortable with that or not does not matter. The fact is you are in a spiritual war and you're better off realizing it than just avoiding it because it's an uncomfortable reality. So we have the internal reality or the internal fall of man in Genesis 3, the external entrance of evil. So now we're dealing with these entities that are enticing us in Genesis 6. And then they also looked at a third entrance of evil. Now, Deuteronomy 32, the final uh, song of Moses, where Moses is, he's giving his final address. It's called the Song of Moses. It, he's giving his final address to the children of Israel. He's going to retire. He's going to heaven. He's turning it over to his, his spiritual son, Joshua. So he gives this final address, and he mentions this obscure little verse that is interesting, but has often been overlooked. And he said that God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God, but Israel he kept for himself. Some translations will translate that according to the sons of Israel. The problem is virtually all scholars agree that this was speaking of the Tower of Babel, that God was divorcing himself from the nations at the Tower of Babel. And it says, but Israel he kept for himself. What did he do? The very next chapter after Genesis 11 at Babel, where man rebelled and God told him to go inhabit the earth, they didn't. So what does God do? He raises up the very next chapter, Genesis 12, Abram. And he says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I will be your God, and through that, you'll be an example to the rest of humanity will win back the nations. Uh, there's been a lot of writing on this in theological circles, uh, and there's been discovery of ancient texts and stuff, and, uh, but I have, I've been living for Jesus for 40 years this year. Uh, I was two when I got saved. No, just kidding. Uh, I've been, I'm 58 now. I got saved. I, I came back to the Lord uh, when I was 18 years old. I was a homeless alcoholic, got radically saved, had a radical encounter with Jesus. And I've been pursuing the Lord, and I've been a man of the book for 40 years. 
And I've been asking the Lord a lot of questions about some of these things because there's a very practical reason I want to know. I believe much of spiritual hunger is simply curiosity. There's this there's this desire to understand that God has placed within us. And if we'll come to him and cry out, God will give us understanding. But there are levels of knowledge. There's, there's ask, seek, knock. You ask, there's uh, James chapter 1 level wisdom. Ask and you shall receive. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. And the Lord will give liberty and the upbraideth not. That's, that's the, that low level. You just, all you gotta do is ask. It's yours for the taking. It's in reserve. If you ask, God will give it to you. But then there is seek and ye shall find. That's Proverbs chapter two, level wisdom. There is wisdom that is hidden. It says seek for wisdom. Search for it as hidden treasure. And if you seek for it, then you will find it. You will find the knowledge of God. So there is some wisdom that is not just for the asking, there's a seeking, it's a process rather than an event, and it's hidden precisely because of its value. You following me? So there are certain things that God will withhold from you until you're ready for it, and it's actually the seeking, pro the process of seeking is what qualifies you or matures you or grows you up so that you can qualify to steward that wisdom once you have it. God is a good father, he will never give you wisdom you cannot handle. So he'll withhold it from you. Just like if you're a good parent, there are certain things you don't talk about with your four-year-old that you'll talk with your 14-year-old and certain things you won't talk with your 14-year-old that you'll discuss with your 24-year-old. Because we have to mature in order to handle some of that understanding. One of the travesties of this generation is having to go through is they're being exposed to explicit material that they are not able to process. And it, it bends them, it corrupts them. I remember as a six-year-old little boy finding pornography out in the woods. And I still remember that feeling. I felt this, I just felt shame come over me. There was, a, there was a fascination. I knew it was forbidden and I felt the shame. And I remember walking in the door to my house and seeing my mom and not wanting to catch her eye because I felt like there's something defiled about me. I was exposed to things I wasn't ready to process yet. So God's a good father. He will always withhold from us wisdom and understanding until we're qualified to steward that. We've reached a level of maturity. The enemy is exactly the opposite. He loves to give you forbidden knowledge. That's what literally the occult is. It's forbidden knowledge. Matter of fact, the early church fathers wrote about that, these watchers that went into the daughters of men. The other thing they did is they brought forbidden knowledge to man about war, sensuality, and, and, and so forth. And so it was to corrupt mankind. And so we're not only dealing with our own fallen nature as human beings, we're dealing with this external enticement. So God places these, so what, let me deal with that, the last one, the last type of wisdom, so keep on this little track. The last type of wisdom is knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Ephesians chapter two and three talks about this, the hidden wisdom of God. And it talks about how it's hidden, I love this phrase, within God himself. Woohoo! The vault in which this treasured wisdom is hidden is the heart of God. The occult cannot touch that. Matter of fact, it says, it's unsearchable wisdom 
hidden within God himself. The word unsearchable literally means no tracks. You can look at it and you don't see it. You can't trace it until God gives you revelation. And so one of the ways in which God stewards his kingdom is revealing and concealing, revealing and concealing. Mysteries and revelation is just another way of saying it. Revelation is a present day reality. I'm not talking about seeing things that are not in the word. God can show you things. Revelation is starting with a conclusion and then backfilling it with the word. God can speak to you things you don't know, but he will back it with his word. Or he can show you in his word and lead you to a conclusion. Study is you, you reason until you come to a conclusion in scripture. Revelation is you get an insight and then you backfill it with scripture. But you better wed it to scripture. So when, when non-charismatics criticize the charismatic movement, we use language like revelation that Paul himself used. Matter of fact, he referred to the spirit of God as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We're to pray for those things. We're not talking about extra biblical revelation. We're talking about God showing us things in his word we would have never seen without his help. And I would propose to you there are things that Paul wrote he didn't understand. He got a flash of revelation, saw one facet, wrote it down. He's like, wow, that was amazing. But there are other facets to that thing Paul himself didn't understand. And so the spirit of wisdom and revelation will lead us along to grow us up. In God, knowledge has a purpose. Knowledge, wisdom and revelation isn't just so that we can feel smart, sit around and talk theology, talk theory, Knowledge is actually the way that God grows you up. First Peter says, grace and peace be unto you through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the conduit or the avenue through which grace comes to you, and grace is the substance of the Christian life. You're saved by grace. You walk by, you never outgrow your need for grace. The substance of the apostle Paul's calling. He said, surely you have heard of the grace of God upon me that made me an apostle. The substance, what God slapped on him to make him an apostle was grace. But the avenue through which grace makes it to us and impacts our heart is knowledge. So you can't grow without knowledge. If you're not growing in your understanding, you ain't growing. That's bad grammar, but good preaching, okay? If you are not growing in your knowledge, you aren't growing, period. Now, that's a safeguard. You can grow in your knowledge and not grow spiritually. There are a lot of very well-informed infants in the church today. They talk theory, but they're not walking it out. But you cannot grow spiritually without growing in your knowledge. And so what the Lord will do is he will birth questions in your heart to entice you and to keep bringing you along. And your hunger will actually lead you into breakthrough and revelation in the things of God. But it's always going to tie back into the book. And so God wants to give us understanding. I say all that to say, I've been asking the Lord about some of this for 40 years now. And I am convinced that some of what we're talking about this morning is essential for the church of Jesus Christ to understand in this hour. Why? Why? 
because there were three separate episodes that created three separate problems and that have three separate solutions. In one sense, of course, the cross of Christ dealt with all of it. But the way in which we apply the cross is different. For the internal fallenness of the human nature, I don't cast that out. I've got to discipline myself. I have the new birth. My nature is now born again, but that old nature wants to rear its head. So what do I do? I've got to renew my mind. I've got to get healed of my emotions. Some of you struggle with the old man, not because your heart is longing for those things, but because of your own woundedness, you have a vulnerability for the enemy to push on those things that creates a longing for the old anesthesia of that dysfunctional, sinful behavior. And so until you get healed, you live on the precipice of temptation. I felt that. Let's just camp out there for a minute. First Peter chapter 4, Peter says this. He says, Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourself also with the same attitude because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. Everybody say this. I, I, I. That is a huge statement. He's saying that if you suffer in your body, you are done with sin. That's, that is a, a, an astounding proposition. So let's unpack that. He says, Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourself also with the same attitude. Jesus had an attitude, a mindset, an approach to sin that is, if we adopt it, it will be an armor of defense against temptation. It will actually defend you. He said, arm yourself with the same attitude. It will become an armor, a shield against the temptation of the enemy. Jesus had a mindset against evil. Then he goes on to say that astounding thing. He who suffers in his body is done with sin. What he's saying is this. All sin is flight from pain. In one form or another. You either have something you don't want, you're willing to step outside of the will of God to get it, or you do have something you don't want, and you're willing to step outside of the will of God to get rid of it. But if we adopt the mindset of Christ, and we embrace pain, it is actually the pathway to deliverance. And so often we're saying, God, if you would just deliver me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel this pain and I wouldn't be so tempted. No, it doesn't work like that. You embrace the pain and say, if I've got to live this way the rest of my life, I'm going to maintain my fidelity to Jesus. And I'm telling you, that is the first step in your deliverance. Because you will learn to overcome those things. And so a lot of people... It's not just present pain, it's pain from their past the enemy will push on to entice them into evil. And so we've got to be so careful. So that's how we deal with that first fall, okay? We deal with the pain from our past. We renew our mind. We discipline ourselves. You don't cast that out. If it was, I'd be signing up for a deliverance session this afternoon. Hallelujah. It's, it's not an event, it's a process to deal with that. For the demonic, you don't discipline a demon. Oh, I'm, I've got, I'm being afflicted, I'm being oppressed, I'm being driven by a spirit, I'm gonna discipline my, no, that's not the answer. You cast that thing out. And let me just, let me just camp out here for a second. The, the whole concept of demon possession in the body of Christ, it, 
we have unfortunate misunderstandings because of our English translations. The Greek does not say demon-possessed. A better translation would simply be demonized. In other words, influenced by a demon. We want to split hairs and kind of, because we're uncomfortable. Demon-possessed. No, demon-oppressed, compressed, suppressed, impressed. Oh, you know. we, we want to have all these terms. The Bible doesn't use any of that. It simply means that you are influenced at some level by a demonic entity. And you can close that door so they don't have any ground to push on. And one of those things is that woundedness that the enemy, inner healing and deliverance often go hand in hand. And those of you that have experienced new levels of freedom in the last couple months know that to be the case. That the enemy will push on that old woundedness and he'll gain a foothold. And we've got to be willing to deal with the pain and as we get inner healing, often we find the deliverance soon after that. But there is another level of evil. And it is not internal. It's not some external entity that we're dealing with. And there are times where there's, there, there's those thoughts, those, that battle. And, and let me just go back here for a second. This thing, a lot of times what believers do is they own the thoughts of the enemy. The enemy will talk to you in your own voice. And if you don't discern, if you don't understand from the word that you are born again, your nature is different, you will actually step off the place of victory and try to fight for victory rather than from it. And that is a whole different deal. And so you've got to learn to discern and you've got to know who you are. Your identity, being established in your identity, is one of the primary acts of war that will give you victory. It, this, this is a spiritual weapon. When you know who you are and the enemy begins to entice you, there are times where I, I've been in a situation where all of a sudden I've had some crazy thought and I've thought, check my heart and think, okay, what's going on in the room? Because that is not who I am. And often your discernment is discerning what's in the room and if you don't understand it, you own it and you're, you're over there repenting and fighting for victory that you already had and the enemy has, has stripped you of your authority and rather than being able to deal with what's in the room, you're over here trying to deal with something that's not even in your heart. And so as we understand who we are in Christ and we know our identity, then we can begin to realize, oh, that's my spidey sense. Well, okay, we'll call it that. But that's, that's discernment. There's something going on in the room and we can deal with this. So we have that, this third one, Genesis 32, Paul, or Moses says this. Psalm 82, we talked about this a number of months ago, uh, but it is, it, let's turn there real quick because it gives us insight into what, uh, what's really going on in this regard, this third entrance of evil that the early church believed in and we need to believe in. Okay, Psalm 82, listen to this. Psalm 82, verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Anybody familiar with John Piper? Anybody in here? John Piper? Conservative, Baptist, theologian, phenomenal man of God, phenomenal scholar. I, I, I want to let you know, he believes this says the same thing that I believe in. 
He, this is not some, you know, aberration, some kind of weird fringe belief. This is, you can, you can Google it, and John Piper believes it means the same thing. So he, he, uh, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long? So now this, so it says, see, this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a prophet that functioned under King David. It says that he was a prophet. He was a song leader. He was also uh, the flag bearer and a gatekeeper. Boy, that'll preach. We don't have time to get into that. But those things go hand in hand. And he was a prophet that would also prophesy with instruments of music. Isn't that interesting? We touched that this morning, by the way, that last song. And there are things that Asaph breaks into. He has a revelation of things that he could not have known had God not downloaded this to him. God showed this to him. So he says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How, and now, this is God speaking to these members of the divine council. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He's rebuking them. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So God is addressing these entities. Now listen to verse six. I said, this is, a, I believe this is Asaph now speaking. I said, you are God's. Now that doesn't change the fact that this is God's word. This is scripture. This is authoritative revelation. But I think it matters that this is now from Asaph's perspective. He said, I said, you are God's, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse eight, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. That last verse is a very, very important part of this passage. What does he say? You shall inherit all the nations. We know in Deuteronomy 32, God delegated the nations, all the nations except Israel, to these sons of God. We see them show up in the book of Job. There's a number of passages. The book of Job, it says the sons of God convened before God, and God looks at, in, in the Hebrew, it's the Satan, and said, where you been? What, what you been up to? And he said, I've been going through all the earth and uh, evaluating the, the affairs of men. He said, have you considered Job? And that kind of launches us out from the book. But it's speaking of the same sons of God. Scholars all agree those are angelic or even divine creatures. Not divine in the sense that they are uncreated. They are created beings living in the spiritual realm. There, it's a hierarchical uh, structure in the spiritual realm. So we see these sons of God. God delegates the nations to them. In Deuteronomy 32, it reveals it to us. But by Psalm 82, God's rebuking them and saying, you have used your administration, your delegated authority, contrary to what I intended. You are gonna die like the sons of men. And then what does he say? Asaph says, you will inherit the nations, speaking to God. So God said, I'm going back after the nations. The great commission, going into all the nations, is tied to this divine council worldview. And we really cannot understand it correctly unless we understand that. That God is going after the nations. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you, make you into a great nation, and then you will bless the nations of the earth. We see in Colossians, 
God strips these beings, these sons of God, of their, uh, of their authority, of their rulership. This is what the, what the Old Testament calls the divine council, the sons of God. These, these beings, the New Testament refers to as principalities. One of the reasons I'd asked the Lord this for years, I'd said, God, what's the deal with these principalities? How did they access that level of authority in the earth? Where could they step into that type of authority? And my theology, what I had been loosely taught and I surmised and kind of tried to connect some dots, I thought, well, you know, the earth had been given to man, that's clear. And that so then man, when he fell into sin, delegated his authority to these spirits and now they rule in the heavenly realms. But that's not the case. Colossians, listen to Colossians chapter one. Listen to what it says. See if I, I've got this written down somewhere here. Colossians chapter one. It says, Colossians one verse 16. For by him, Speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So God created these positions, these thrones, these, the structure of the spiritual realm, was created by God to glorify him and serve his purposes. But through the fall, these positions were corrupted. And what we now consider spiritual warfare is dealing with these entities. And we need to understand that. What we're getting into is what's called a biblical cosmology. How does the cosmos work? How does God govern his creation? The very idea of a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is not a place, it's, it's not a realm, it's rule. The Spanish word that we translate kingdom is reino. Am I right? Reino. It, 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 it gives us the idea of the English word to reign, and that is the kingdom of God is his authoritative right to rule. There, it is unarguable, unchallengeable. No one voted in him, voted him in, and no one's going to vote him out. He is, he has all authority. Why? Because he is the author. <laughs> he created it, and then he authorizes people with authority to rule in layers of delegated authority. There is a hierarchy to the spiritual realm. And if we don't understand this, see, an oversimplistic cosmology will cause you to run into problems in your walk with Jesus. Especially when we begin to talk about the mission and extending the kingdom of God. 
When we want to go into regions, we want to go into nations. As I've learned this, when I get into a nation, when I've come there to minister, I go out on the balcony, because usually there's a balcony on the hotel, and I'll stand out there and I will just begin to declare, I'm here on assignment from King Jesus. He's come to take this nation back, and I come under his authority, under his protection, and I come here with the kerygma, the authoritative message from the kingdom of God. Because that is our mission, to extend the kingdom. But if we don't understand that, we think we're just kind of trying to talk people into believing in Jesus. What I'm saying is this. There is an internal fallenness that man struggles with, but there is an external darkness that man resides in. And we've got to contend with that and deal with that so men's eyes can be opened, their hearts are enlightened, and they can be saved. That's why prayer and evangelism go hand in hand. Because if we don't win the battle in the spirit, we don't win the battle for the souls of men. Because they're left groping around in darkness. The gospel doesn't make sense. The, Bi the Bible uses this terminology. They are darkened in their understanding. In fact, Ephesians 4 and Romans 1 both use this terminology. Romans 1 deals with, uh, with it on a corporate level, an atmospheric level, which is what we're talking about this morning. Ephesians 4 deals with it on an individual level. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Look at this. This is, this is a troubling passage, but it's something we need to understand. And we can rescue men and women from this. I... I read this years ago. As I began to understand this passage, I thought, been there, done that. I remember walking away from Jesus, and I walked right down this pathway. What Paul is going to do, if you begin to look in verse, uh, look at verse 17, Paul is going to, he's going to start at the end, and he's going to reverse engineer how did man end up in this terrible dilemma, and he's going to reverse engineer it and find out the root cause of this thing called the darkening of the understanding. I would propose to you that you could, you could put the title over this whole passage, the process of the darkening of the understanding, or the process of the hardening of the heart, because they're one and the same. Listen to what he says here, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, hold there for a second. Understand, Paul would not warn us against this if it was not possible for us as a believer to do so. He's not gonna say, you know, don't, don't go out and create your own universe because you can't do that. He doesn't warn you. He doesn't say, Dave, be careful. Don't be a movie star. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen, okay? He warns me about things that are a danger for me, not an impossibility. So, <laughs> enough said. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What does he say? In the futility of their minds. Romans 1 uses that same language, the futility of their thinking. 
There are three phrases in Romans 1 where he's talking about how God gave them over to a depraved mind. Remember that? Where they knew God but refused to worship him as God. And so God gave them over to a depraved mind and they became inflamed with lust. The next stage is they became inflamed. Men became inflamed with lust for one another and women would lay with women, which was unnatural, Paul says. So both of these passages talk about the futility of the thinking, the darkening of the understanding, and they being given over to sensuality. That is what we are dealing with as a culture. And it's not just in the United States. This is a global thing that we're dealing with. And God always answers fire with fire. Worldwide revival has already begun. But we need to fuel it with our intercession and with understanding so we can engage. So what does Paul say? He says, They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. So that's the end result. Darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. Listen to that. Darkened in their understanding. Their mind is not enlightened, which is the the converse idea that Scripture talks about, that our minds would be enlightened, that the Spirit would give us light. Uh, 2 Corinthians, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus would be shed abroad in their hearts. And all of a sudden we'd see we're not darkened. We're not groping about in the dark, not understanding. We, we can't connect the dots. I don't understand cause and effect. I'm doing these things. And I'm, I'm, I'm complaining about my sore back while I jump out windows and break the law of gravity. And I don't connect the two. Well, don't jump out a second story window and your back won't hurt. But I don't understand that. I can't connect the dots between cause and effect. It's like that's the darkening of the understanding. We, we can't see. We're imprisoned by our darkened understanding. That's the end result. But he says this, because of or the cause of which is what? The ignorance that is in them. So there's ignorance. There's things that they don't know. Okay, But then he says this, that is due to what? The hardening of their heart. So he goes back to the root. The root cause is this. Man hardens his heart. The hardening of the heart is a very specific idea in Scripture. Psalm 20, or Proverbs 28, verse 14. It juxtaposes the hardening of the heart over against the fear of the Lord. It shows us that those are two opposite responses. When you're confronted on something, when you see the truth and it's an uncomfortable truth and it's gonna demand something of you, it's gonna demand change, you have one of two choices. You're at a fork in the road. You gotta decide, will I fear the Lord and enter into the wisdom and bend my neck and say, God, you're smarter than me? My mind says I don't want this, but I know you know what I really want and I've learned by experience when I go after something that you tell me I don't want and I say, oh yes I do, that it isn't very long I'm crying out saying, God, I don't want it. Will you deliver me from it? So we walk in the fear of the Lord and that's the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom in scripture is living for the long term. It's living according to the consequences. It's living, looking down the road a ways and saying, oh, if I do this today, this will happen tomorrow. 
and this is the thing I want to happen, so I'm going to do this today, and this is the thing I don't want to happen tomorrow, so I'm not going to do this today. That's the fear of the Lord. Foolishness is the opposite. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I, don't, I may not even be alive tomorrow to suffer the bad consequences or enjoy the good consequences of good behavior, so I'm just going to indulge in the moment. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He doesn't act according to a God that's overseeing all of history and weighing and balancing the scales of human behavior. So we just throw caution to the wind and we bring stuff, we bring tragedy on our own lives because we're fools. Fools just look at the moment. I want this now. The flip side is the hardening of the heart. So if, if we're gonna be wise and walk in the fear of the Lord, then we, we begin to make decisions based on the long-term consequences. And I tell you, that is the life of blessing. You pay the price now for repeating benefits in the future. You do the hard things now knowing that there's gonna be a snowball. I'm telling you, I've walked with Jesus for many decades now, and I'm telling you, God is good, and if you will follow him, blessing will chase you down. Doesn't mean that life's a bed of roses, but I'm telling you, a bad day in Jesus is better than the best day without him. And if you will go after it, there is a snowball effect of blessing that will chase you down because it's the blessed life. Because his principles work. His reign is good. The alternative is you harden your heart. What does hardening of the heart mean? The hardening of the heart, see, what does Paul say here in Ephesians 4? He says, they harden their heart, which results in ignorance, which then results in the darkening of the understanding. There's a progression, or rather a digression here. The hardening of the heart is, I don't want this truth. This is an uncomfortable truth. I don't want to hear this. I know what I want. Don't give me counsel to the contrary. I want this thing. And you can, God will honor your decision. C.S. Lewis said, he said, eternity will end with two types of people. Those who said, God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. God will honor our decision. And those who do not fear him will make bad decisions. So we walk in the fear of the Lord and we won't harden our heart. But the hardening of the heart is saying, I don't want that truth. I don't want that principle. I don't want to hear it. See, we think we can isolate our disobedience. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna isolate it. I'm just gonna say no to this one thing. I'm gonna stay surrendered in all other areas. It doesn't work that way. You can't contain that rebellion. It'll begin to leak into every other place. When you resist him in one truth, what happens in resisting the truth, you begin to lose truth with the, lose the truth you once had. Ignorance steps in. Hardening of the heart is to ignore the rebuke. Ignorance is a step beyond. Now I no longer have truth. I'm ignorant. I, I don't understand things. I can't connect the dots. I remember when I walked away from God and I, I, got, I went deep into sin. I became a very demonized young man. And I remember people coming up and witnessing to me and I knew the truth. In fact, I would tell people about the gospel and they'd laugh at me. Ah, you're gonna, you're gonna be a preacher someday. 
I would talk to them about the gospel's real, but it was like I couldn't grasp it. I could tell you the data, the facts, but it had no impact on my heart. It was like, it, if I tried to grasp, it was like smoke. It would just disappear. I was in bondage. My understanding was darkened. I was ignorant. So harden your heart, ignore, Ignorance, ignore, ignorance sets in. And then the final phase is they're darkened under understanding and separated from the life of God. The, or alienated is the way the ESV says. The darkening of the understanding is to lose the moral faculty to receive any more revelation. It's not that you just lost what you once have. You've lost the ability to gain it back because your understanding is darkened. And the only hope for that person is the mercy of God and somebody praying that they would come into that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus would be shed abroad in their heart. And they would, the God, it's, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. It's a beautiful passage. The God who says, let there be light would say over them, let there be light, and the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's like the fog, the, 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 the smog over their life, the moral clouds. All of a sudden, the sunburst comes through, and it burns off the clouds, and all of a sudden, they're standing an open day, and they see, and they understand. I remember distinctly a season in my life where all of a sudden I began to understand the gospel. I began to come under conviction. I began to respond to the fear of the Lord because I was so convinced God is real. I still don't want to serve him, but I don't want to violate him at that level because I know he sees everything and I'm going to get a spanking. That is not the thinking of a sinner. That is not the thinking of a person that's going to continue. It was because there was a group of ladies at First Church of the Open Bible in Ottumwa, Iowa, that were contending for my soul. Years later, I ran into a little lady in a mall, and she, she pulled me aside, and she said, Dave, I've never told you this. She, and she told me the, the approximate date is when I was living on the street. She said, one night at, at church, we were having a, just a time at the altar. And she said, that had such a burden for you. She said, I just began to cry out to God for you. I laid at the altar just weeping for your soul. That's the only reason I'm saved today. Because God had somebody he could get to pray for me and lift that darkness. So there is this darkness that comes on people that we bring on ourselves. That's the individual darkness of Ephesians 4. But there is a corporate darkness that literally settles on a society, on a culture, and on nations. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 very quickly. And we're going to wrap this up. And this is important for us to understand for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is if we are going to deal with the darkness, this present darkness that is pervading our nation, God needs a people that understand what they walk in and we begin to penetrate this darkness with intercession. God wants to send a sunburst that the sun, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of his son would burn off the clouds 
It'd burn off the fog and people would begin to see. And there are times all throughout human history where people talked about it was, it was not an internal thing like my testimony is where people were praying for me as an individual and I began to see. It, it was an atmospheric thing that they walked in. The, the first great awakening in the United States before we were a nation, uh, the most prominent figure, leader of that, that move was Jonathan Edwards. But they talked about the God zone in the harbor of the colonial America. There was one ship, a famous story of ships would come in from sea, men out nine months at sea. They're ready to get paid for nine months of labor in one paycheck. And they had just a few things on their mind and none of them were good. They were going to go wine and women and they were going to go blow their money and they would float into the harbor and there was a place they would cross a line into the harbor and they would come under severe conviction and get saved. There was one story of a ship that was parked on what they called the God zone. There were men on one side of the ship that weren't over that line and they were cussing and fighting and punching each other out and guys on the other side of the ship were literally on their knees wailing, crying out to God for salvation. There is such a thing as God coming down and crippling darkness in a region, a geographical region, where the eyes of men are enlightened. And it's not that they, they thought themselves into it. They stepped into it, and all of a sudden, the God they didn't believe in, didn't want to serve, simply happens to them. And they're converted. And that's what we need to pray for. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't have time to get into it, but I'm telling you, the devil has a schematic, a pattern by which he assaults the souls of men. Paul said, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. Sad to say, that cannot be said over everyone. There are people who are ignorant of the schematics of the enemy. The great war book called, what is it? Uh, the Art of War. One of the principles is know your enemy and his strategies. Don't be ignorant of the schematic of the enemy. He, he'll drop over your life and try to work. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, now listen what he says, the rulers against the, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, there's two views on this passage. I wouldn't arm wrestle anybody over it, but my loosely held view is this is not speaking of a hierarchical list of spiritual entities. Now, I believe... There is a hierarchy of spiritual entities in the spiritual realm. And that first one, rulers, is arche, A-R-C-H-E. It's where we get the word archangel. It's the one they put in front of the angel. Arche, it, it means first, commander, ruler. It implies that there is a hierarchy. But some people will read this as, okay, there's these principalities, these rulers, and then there's authorities, and then there's cosmic powers. This is my loosely held opinion, okay? I, I don't believe that's what that's talking about. Uh, let me, let me read it to you because we're running out of time. You guys are taking way too long. Um, <laughs> I am not convinced this description is necessarily describing different entities. My estimation is that it is most likely elaborating on the very fa various facets of these arches, principalities. 
Number one, their legal standing, authorities, exousia. Uh, it means their, their, the authority by which they function. Their function, power over, they have power over this present darkness and their nature of their evil as well as defining the realm of their functioning. Uh, and so what I mean by that is this, that they are these spirits that function with authority. Why? Because God created an authoritative structure. He assigned the nations to them. And now in Psalm 82, he said, I'm going to strip you of your authority. Colossians tells us God, Jesus did that at the cross. He stripped them of their authority. They no longer have authority, but they still occupy those positions. So what are you and I to do? We are to go in and we are to do war. And these rogue rulers that are exerting squatting rights, we displace them through intercession, through travail, so that we can have victory over this present darkness. Uh, we don't have time to get into all these terms. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll revisit this next week. But let me just mention one thing. This idea, this present dark, well, let me, let me just, who'll give me five minutes? Five, 10, 15, 20, okay. Rulers, arche, first, okay, these are the meanings of these words. I'm just gonna read them real quick. Ar rulers, arche, first beginning chief ruler. This term is, this is the term from which we derive archangels. Seems to denote a position by design, a position granted to rule. Authorities, exousia. Authority, freedom of choice, right, permission. The English term authority is an accurate translation from which we get the English authorization, which is a related concept to this Greek term. It denotes the created order which has now been corrupted by sin. The beings which function within the parameters of this title leverage the created order for their defiled ends. Cosmic powers is the next word. Cosmocrator, that's really what it, that's the word. Uh, literally means world ruler. Cosmos, orderly arrangement, and by implication creation, critio, dominion, might, to seize or retain, to exercise dominion over the cosmos with the implication of arrangement. According to Kittles, it's, that's a, one of, many people think it's the premier Greek uh, handbook. This compound word weds both ideas together, referring to both the force and comprehensiveness of their design, speaking of these rogue entities. Now, this is the one we really want to look at. This present darkness. The Greek word is skotos. Shadow. Obscurity denotes the absence of light and in turn, the ignorance of God. It's a moral darkness. It is a pervading darkness which, if not completely so, contains a strong moral element. It obscures the ability to understand moral and even psychological issues, veiling connections and ca of causes and effects. It is the darkening of the understanding on a corporate, societal, and even atmospheric level. The inclusion of this idea of this present darkness denotes the immediacy, the murkiness which we all contend with in this present age. One of the common dynamics of revival, however, which has been pointed out by many throughout history is the atmospheric clarity and cleanliness people experience during seasons of outpouring. You ever been in revival? You go in and it's like the air is clear. It's like, oh man, you feel that? You open your Bible and it's just alive? Because the darkness has lifted. The dominion of God come in, has come in and displaced this present darkness. That's what we're contending for. So he goes on, or I go on. <laughs> uh, 
Many have pointed out throughout history the atmospheric clarity and cleanliness people experience during seasons of outpouring. It is this very darkness, this skotos, that is per- penetrated by the Spirit of God coming as the Spirit of truth, a Spirit of wisdom and revelation which dispels lies and removes human justifications, melting them like wax before the presence of the Lord. All our justifications and our arguments that we hold on to for what we do melt away and we're stripped bare before the Lord and we know we have to deal with him. That's a good thing. If your armor of defense against God still works, let me know. I'll be praying for you that God will strip you naked. (laughs) Revelation which dispels lies and removes human justification, melting like wax for the presence of the Lord. The removal of this present darkness is what is behind the concept of an open heaven when applied geographically and atmospherically. Then it says spiritual forces and and heavenly places. Uh, I won't even get into the Greek. The term traces the activity to spiritual entities, entities defining its source. It, uh, uh, the, the word evil defines the moral nature and the motive behind this activity. It denotes wickedness, twistedness, all with a malicious intent defining the motive. And it happens in the spiritual realm. It defines the context or dimension out of which this evil emanates and in which it operates. And that, my friend, is what we're dealing with as a nation. But we are the people of God. And the gospel contains the power to lift this present darkness. And there is, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle with these principalities and powers. We don't do it cavalierly and start rebuking them, but in prayer, in travail, we begin to press. Let me read you one more thing. Stand so you know I'm gonna quit. Let me, let me just read you this one more thing. Come on. Pray for my computer. Okay, here it is. Our will in this realm of travail is essential. We are displacing the enemy through stubborn determination. We become like a bull that is pushing, consistent, stubborn pressure is brought against any opposition until this will is accomplished. God's will is accomplished in this situation. That's what that idea of wrestling means. Those of you who have wrestled, you understand wrestling is one of the most exhausting sports because the body itself is the weapon and you are using it to bear pressure upon them until they give in. And that's the idea that he has with us wrestling against these principalities and powers. It is this that Paul is talking about when he says we wrestle against principalities and powers in high places. There is a wrestling, a struggle, a showdown of wills. You've got to set your heart towards this thing. I so appreciated what Pastor Kara said this morning. And I I turned to the young man standing next to me and I I asked him what he gave up and I said, this is what I was laying down this morning. I feel like I have been distracted from, by the cares of this life. And I want to give myself to this thing. I want to give my whole heart. I received a call the other day. I said, would you get on the phone with Lou Engel? I said, sure. I thought it was going to be like 50 pastors. It was Lou and his prophetic sidekick and this, a prayer leader from across the state. And he said, can you mobilize people in Iowa for the elections? 
He said, do you think you can call Iowa to a 21-day fast for the elections? I believe God is calling us to this, this showdown of wills. There needs to be something within us that stands up and says, not on my watch. Not on my watch. We're seeing this nation go to hell in a handbasket. And there needs to be something in us that says, not on my watch. This type of praying is a contact sport wherein we come into direct contact with the opposition. We feel his breath, but this level of prayer is functioned in only by those who have already achieved the internal surrender. They are in no danger. They can say with Jesus, he has nothing in me. You've already laid it down. To the extent you have something you're still holding on to is the thing the enemy will come against. If you're touchy, you will be touched. The enemy has nothing in them. They, are already, they have already given their lives in surrender. The threat of giving it in the battle doesn't move them. The enemy must acquiesce to this type of saint. And this is the great need of this hour, praying saints who love not their lives unto the death. Let's pray. Father, we're asking God that you would light our souls on fire. Lord, we ask that you would take an, a coal off the altar of heaven and ignite our hearts. Lord, do what we cannot do for ourselves. I just feel like the Lord is asking each of us this morning, individually and corporately, do I have your yes? Our yes doesn't mean we have the capacity to carry it out on our own, but we surrender our will and we say, Jesus, Make me willing. Do whatever you have to do to get me where you need me to be. What Pastor Kara shared this morning is a word from the Lord. He's looking for a deeper surrender. And future generations look back at this generation. God is looking for a company of people of whom it will be said they laid their life down to save a nation. They laid their life down to shape history and to turn the corner. Lord, we're asking God that you would touch us, light our hearts on fire. And Father, we're asking that you would instruct us, give us understanding for the assignment. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Before I let you go, I do apologize for going long. Uh, but I'm sticking two weeks into one because Pastor Laura bumped me. <laughs> if you're here this morning and you're not right with God, this is your opportunity. Jesus brought you here and he's here standing before you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He wants you. He's got a plan for your life, but it's gonna take your surrender. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm, I'm willing to step over the line, I need Jesus. I need to surrender my life to him. Just raise your hand right now. You're saying, I need to get right with God this morning. Just raise your hand high. Make sure I acknowledge it before, before you put it down. You need to get right with God this morning. You're not walking with him. And you're saying, I need that. I want that. I'm willing to surrender my life. Nobody can make that decision for you. Often, I know when I would sit in services and 
I felt that panic and that my heart would beat and I just wanted to get out of there. Don't give in to that. Step over the line. If you need to get right with God, just raise your hand right now. We want to pray with you. All right. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what you're doing in us, God. Lord, take us as your people. Take us deeper. Jesus, this church, this congregation, we as a corporate people are yours to do with as you please. Spend us, Lord. Spend us. Lord, don't let us waste our life on silly temporal things. Spend us well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.